So um, we're going to talk about Old Testament law, and as you might guess from, uh, if you've been in the morning sessions, you're going to guess that my approach is going to be to try and set Old Testament law within the, the big story, right? So, to try and read Old Testament law in the context of the whole of Scripture, which is uh, how I think we should uh, do it. Uh, I'm going to approach it in the following way. I'm going to, first of all, describe briefly to you uh, what Old Testament law is and the convictions and the beliefs that underlie it. Um, and then we'll get into the second, slightly longer part of the talk, and I will ask the question, what does all of that have to do with us? Uh, you can't really ask the second question unless you know what it is you're dealing with in the first part of the question. So we don't want to rush to the question of relevance before we understand what we're dealing with. And then we'll open it up and uh, have some Q&A, and uh, you can ask me whatever you like about that. Okay, so here we go. First of all, with a uh, description of Old Testament law. Um, over 25% of the Old Testament has traditionally been designated as law. Uh, that's the part that Christians call the Pentateuch, but in in the, the Jewish faith, it's referred to as Torah, the law, the, the whole thing. Uh, when Jesus says, think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets really are the first part of the, the Jewish canon, the Pentateuch, and, and then the second part. There are, in Jewish faith, there are three parts. They organize the Old Testament slightly differently from the way that we do. So the law most strictly speaking, equals the Pentateuch. And the interesting thing about that is that there's a lot more in the Pentateuch than simply legal stuff. You'll have noticed that. We've been looking at narratives, have we not, in the morning uh, sessions. So it's clear that in, in biblical faith, people are looking at narratives as also in some way being God's Torah. It's not just rules and instructions, it's narratives. And really, we've been reading those narratives really along the same lines in the mornings, right? We're not just reading them for academic interest. We're reading them to find out what we ought to believe and how we ought to live, right? So they are, in that sense, law. Or maybe a better word would be instruction. Because uh, when we say law, we think of judges and law courts. But really, more broadly... That Hebrew word Torah means instruction. It's not merely things that we might think of as, as legal. Uh, so when the Apostle Paul, as you will remember rather uh, famously, uh, when he uh, says all Scripture is inspired, uh, is God-breathed, and useful in one way or another, you remember that verse, showing us truth exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live in God's way. Of course, mainly in that verse, he's referring to the Old Testament, isn't he? Because the New Testament doesn't exist yet when he's writing that letter to Timothy. He's really referring to the whole Old Testament in a way as law. It's instruction from God to us. So there are different levels here, first of all, that we have to try and get our head around. And that's rather important because it means that when we use the word law 
of the Old Testament, actually included within that are all sorts of things that we modern people would put under different headings. They wouldn't all be the same thing. Old Testament law includes what we would call ethics, moral vision. How ought we to live? It includes moral vision. Uh, it also includes a vision of society, what we would call politics. What does the good society look like? Which is not quite the same thing as what is my moral vision individually, right? There might be things that you do in society for the good of society that are not really about moral vision. They're more about pragmatics, right? Old Testament law includes that. It definitely includes stuff that we would, in fact, call law. So actual legal stuff with penalties attached. Oh, you know, I'm going to stick with this. It's more edgy and daring. <laughs> and we're just going to see what happens. Uh, so um, when we're talking about law in this broader sense, uh, you can even find uh, some New Testament passages that, that speak about this. Paul in Galatians 4, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written, Abraham had two sons. Now, the reference is to a narrative, but Paul refers to it as the law. You see my point. And there are lots of examples uh, like that in the New Testament, which I'm just going to pass over the details of uh, for the sake of uh, time. So, we have to recognize that at the largest level, when we refer to God's law, it's really just all of God's instruction to the people of God. And then within that, there are also things that we might call uh, law or ethics uh, or whatever. Um, so when we read Old Testament law, sometimes as Christians, we, we get puzzled, I think, on these areas. So for example... We find rules in the Old Testament about ritual washing, right? Or about priestly clothing. And we say, well, that doesn't seem to me to be giving me much ethical guidance in a way. But the point was, it really wasn't meant to give them ethical guidance either. It's not, it wasn't that kind of thing. There's more than one kind of thing going on. And in, in, in the Old Testament... All of these things flow together. We might separate them out. We would make a distinction between ethics and law, usually, right? So, for example, wise legislators do not legislate, you know, you shall be generous, because they recognize that trying to legislate ethics is a bit futile, right? Wise legislators tend to legislate against vice. They don't tend to legislate for virtue. These are two different spheres. But in the Old Testament, it all flows into one thing. And this can make reading the Pentateuch somewhat challenging because you have to constantly be thinking to yourself, which kind of thing am I dealing with here? Right? Is this an ethical injunction? Is this a concession to people's wickedness? So you're just trying to sort out some of the mess? Which kind of thing... Uh, are you dealing with? It's very important we make these distinctions because otherwise we could end up reading as a moral imperative something that's just a concession to wickedness. And if we do that, we'll end up imitating that and it won't be the right thing to do. Are you with me so far? Right? Big picture. 
Lots of stuff in there. It's all called law in one sense. We might better use the word instruction, though, so we don't get confused because actually there's a lot of different things going on. Okay? Now, you can ask me a whole bunch more about that uh, later on. That's the, the beauty of a, a seminar uh, format. Um, so here's a good example from Psalm 119 of this much bigger idea of God's law. Psalm 119, a very long psalm celebrating God's instruction. And in verse 89, Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You establish the earth and it endures. Your laws endure to this day, for all things serve you. And you see there that this idea of instruction is it's, it's about creation. It's engraved in the heavens. This is not about Moses on Mount Sinai just. This is about God's instruction uh, much, much more broadly. So that's a, a, a large level idea of God's law. Here's a much more, uh, here's a, a much more, a, a smaller idea. So here's a very specific rule in Exodus 21. If a man beats his male or female slave with a rod and the slave dies as a direct result, he must be punished. Now that's not really, if you like, uh, part of a, a moral vision, right? That's actually just saying, if this happens, this other thing should follow. We're going to clear up some of the mess here. We're going to make sure there's some degree of justice. Uh, but it's not exactly a calling to high ideals. It's really a concession to human wickedness. So we have to be very, very clear about what we're uh, dealing with. So that's the nature of the thing that we are talking about. That then puts us in a, a good position, I hope, to get to the, the second and the main question probably on your mind this morning. What is the relevance of Old Testament Torah? I'm going to call it Torah just to get away from the word law. So just bear with me on that. What's the relevance of Old Testament Torah? Since we are now the New Testament people of God, the New Covenant, we're both Jew and Gentile. We're not Israelites any longer. We're Christians. Um, so what has this this whole section of the Bible got to do with us? What's it got to do with our ethics, our politics, and our law? Historically, you find Christians having very different ideas about this question. Uh, some Christians, historically, have thought that Torah is highly relevant to us, in all three spheres. So moral vision, the good society, and law. And these perspectives, actually, this, this issue is already being discussed right back at the origins of the Christian church. Acts chapter 15, we find an early discussion there about whether Gentile Christians should be circumcised and instructed to keep the law of Moses. This question was being asked. And the reason it was being asked was because this is the word of God. You don't lightly set aside the word of God. And so the question is, what about the Gentiles? Where do they fit in? Do they have to keep this law? 
And from time to time, through the course of church history, particularly when Christians have recovered the Old Testament as an active part of their Bible, this question has arisen uh, again and again. Um, we do go through cycles on these things. Um, I suspect we're about to go through another cycle of this uh, now, as far as I can tell, in church life. And one of the reasons is that so many people are pretty tired of the superficiality and rootlessness of much Western evangelical Christianity. They're looking for a bigger story. They're looking for something that actually does apply to all of life. And so they're asking the question, well, what about God's law to the Israelites? Does that have anything to say uh, to us? Um, so this has been a, a big part of Christian history. And people who take this view tend to quote various New Testament texts. And perhaps the most uh, famous of these is in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, you remember, Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So that sounds like a pretty directive, pretty straightforward, you know. You've, you, you're not in a different planet now, folks, you know. God is still God. God's law is still to be taken seriously. And very often what happens when people take this very seriously is you'll find Christians arguing for a very strict keeping of the Sabbath. Uh, very often uh, people will get into keeping Old Testament food laws, uh, Old Testament festivals. You find Christian groups now reintroducing Passover into their uh, Christian church life. And in some parts of the world sometimes arguing that even the entirety of the law should become the law of the state. There's a group called, um, they call, they're called Theonomists in the U.S. They tended to ally with the Tea Party on that side of Republican politics. And uh, their agenda, really, is to get Old Testament law back in the center of things as American law. Right? They believe this is the right thing to do. The godly society should have God's law at the center. So some Christians have thought, okay, we, we've got to really take this very seriously. Old Testament law is really, really important. More commonly, more commonly in, uh, in church history, we find Christians arguing right at the opposite end of the spectrum. Actually, you know, Old Testament law has nothing to do with us. Absolutely nothing to do with us. Nothing to do with our ethics or our politics or our law because... We are under grace, whereas the Old Testament people were under law. And the argument tends to go on from there that Old Testament religion was all about keeping external rules. New Testament religion is about what's happening in the heart. A lot of the New Testament, these folks say, explicitly tells us that all sorts of aspects of Old Testament law are not binding on us. So the Apostle Paul is adamant that Gentile Christians don't have to be circumcised, for example, Galatians, and there's other texts of the same kind. Romans 14 would be a kind of go-to text 
in these folks' minds. One person esteems one day better than another. Other, another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And this passage seems to open this up to be a matter of conscience. Right? So uh, each, each side of this discussion tends to have their go-to New Testament passages. And so on this view, rules about food, completely irrelevant to, to the Christian, right? Uh, so most Christians eat pork, for example, which would definitely be a deviation from, from Old Testament law. Um, and in this view, people would tend not to be very Sabbatarian at all, for example, because that's part of the Old Covenant and so on. So this leads me to my question. Is Israel's law completely relevant to us, down to the last detail? Should we obey it to the letter, even where it doesn't make much sense actually to do so? Or is the law completely irrelevant to us? I am not under law, so there. Or is the truth somewhere in between? Is Old Testament Torah relevant only to me personally, also to my community, society at large? That's the question I want to try and answer in the next little uh, while. So let's begin with this question of moral vision, moral ideals, the, the life, the kingdom life that we are called to, right? The vision that lies ahead of us that we're being called into by God. Uh, are there such moral ideals in the Old Testament? Well, absolutely there are. And there are some very obvious places where this is true. And the most obvious place would be the Ten Commandments, of course. Right? The Ten Commandments, the first few tell us about loving God. The rest of them tell us about loving our neighbor. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. And so on and so forth. It's pretty obvious that these are not laws in our modern sense of the word. And in fact... They weren't even laws, I think, back then. And the reason I say that is because you'll notice with the Ten Commandments, there are no penalties attached to breaking them, right? They don't have a, a legal form. If somebody does this, this other thing should happen. So they, they don't look really like laws in the normal sense of the word. They're not crimes and misdemeanors for which you could be prosecuted, the Ten Commandments. That's really obvious, I think, in the final one. You shall not covet. You shall not be desirous of having other people's stuff. How would you prosecute for that? You'd need a very, very effective thought police. right? So you, you can't really see that, that commandment, can you, as an example of law. So the best way of thinking about the Ten Commandments is not really as law, but as a, a basic statement of religious and ethical principles. Here's, here's some fundamentally important things about following in God's ways. Here are some moral ideals. The closest thing in our legal system to this would be something like constitutional law, which sets out a great big vision of society, yes, but it doesn't by itself lead to prosecution, right? 
tells you the, the kind of people you aspire to be, right? That's the, that's the idea. With regard to, to this kind of law, I don't think there's any question uh, about it being relevant to us. Of course it's relevant to us. Uh, and in fact, you may well have noticed that in the New Testament, the Ten Commandments are regularly cited, quoted, referred to by both Jesus and by Paul. Uh, surely God looks to the New Testament people of God not to steal and not to murder, just as much as God looked to the Old Testament people of God. So these are pretty high-level biblical principles, and they're not really dependent on which part of the story we're in. It's always wrong to steal. It's always wrong to murder. It doesn't really matter whether you're in ancient Israel or in the church. So here, at least we have some idea that Old Testament law is, in fact, still for us, at least here, okay? Now, I just want to uh, enter a little caveat here at this point, precisely because most of you would probably agree with me that the Ten Commandments are still relevant uh, to us. I just want to enter a, a little bit of a, a question here. Um, these are really important principles, for sure, I don't think they're intended to be an exhaustive list of all the principles that are really important, though. I don't think that's what they are. They don't actually, in my opinion, tell the whole story. Uh, they're mainly negative in character. These are just uh, quotations in the New Testament about this. I'm passing over that. They're mainly uh, negative in character. Don't do this. Don't do that. They tell us things we shouldn't do. They don't tell us things we should do. Have you noticed that? Thou shalt not is the emphasis of the Ten Commandments. So, for example, the Ten Commandments tell us you shouldn't steal. But they don't tell us what our duty is to the person who has less than we do. You see? The negative is not the whole story in terms of biblical ethics. So even the Ten Commandments are actually quite selective in what they say. They don't mention a lot of really important things that appear elsewhere in the Bible, elsewhere in the Old Testament. Uh, so, for example, we're often told elsewhere in the Old Testament that God's people should be generous. But generosity is not commanded in the Ten Commandments. You see the point I'm making here? Really important principles but not everything involved in the life of the people of God. And so um, you're told in the Ten Commandments that adultery is wrong. But you and I both know there's more to sexual sin than simply adultery, right? There's a whole bunch of other things to do with that topic, which are also, from the biblical point of view, really problematic. So when Job is defending his integrity before God. In Job chapter 31, he doesn't stop at adultery. Here's what Job says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. He doesn't go to the Ten Commandments because he knows that's just one of the things. He goes somewhere else. He goes to what's in his heart, what his eyes are doing, right? So that's already part of the moral vision of the Bible. That you ought to treat your female neighbor properly. And the adultery thing is only really a small part of that. I mean, it's an important part, but it's only one part of a much larger thing. 
So I have a big problem with these uh, Ten Commandment fridge magnets you can get. You ever, any, some of you got these? I hope I'm not offending you. I discovered a while ago you can buy Ten Commandment fridge magnets online. Zazzle.ca, if you're motivated. Four dollars, four Canadian dollars each. Uh, my favorite one is the one in the bottom right. The Ten Commandments are not multiple choice. Hang this cool magnet on your fridge, urges the, the website, and remind yourself and everyone else that we cannot pick and choose which commandments are right and wrong. Which is true. It's true. We cannot pick and choose. But here's something else we can't do. We can't just put our Ten Commandment fridge magnet up in the fridge, take off the ten, and then say, okay, that's it for the day. I'm good. Right? You see my point. This is not an exhaustive, all-encompassing vision of the righteous life, biblically speaking. We have in the Ten Commandments only some very important principles. And by the way, this is why, I think, Jesus reacts to the rich young ruler in the way he does. Do you remember? Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Jesus says, obey the commandments. He says, I've done that. What do I still lack? Jesus says, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, then come and follow me. The young guy thought that he had ticked the list. And Jesus says, good for you. Now go and be generous. And he wasn't up for that. You remember? He went away sad. So negatives, and this is the important point, negatives do not exhaust the moral vision of the Bible. And when Jesus sums up the Old Testament, you remember, he does not sum it up negatively. He sums it up positively. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So, we have to be careful about this because in some of our church circles, the Ten Commandments have almost become a thing by themselves. I don't know if this still happens in Northern Ireland. When I was growing up in Scotland, if you met people outside the church and you talked to them about the gospel, very often you'd get a response, well, I don't go to church, but I keep the Ten Commandments. And this was their way of saying, I'm a good person. And good, good for them if it's true. But in a way, it's missing the point. The point is to love God and love our neighbor. So, um, very important, uh, big principles, but the moral vision of the Bible is bigger than that. Let's think about, so what I'm saying really is that the moral vision of the Old Testament is absolutely the same moral vision as we're called to in the New Testament, right? God is God. God's character hasn't changed. What he calls his people to be like, to be holy as he is holy, has not changed. So there's a whole bunch of things in the Old Testament law, I would say, that are pretty obviously still meant for us. Now, what about Old Testament legislation? So here we are dealing with uh, criminal law or civil law. Uh, take, uh, for example, uh, the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder. That commandment, although it doesn't have legal ramifications, then pops up in a number of rules that do have legal ramifications. If somebody should murder, if somebody should accidentally kill somebody, 
What happens then? So these are the legal outworkings, if you like, of the moral vision, if you want to uh, put it that way. And this even includes things like uh, people not looking after dangerous animals, and they then do damage. It's, you know, these are things that society should care about, and there are rules, and there are punishments and penalties to encourage people uh, to keep the rules. As we read these various rules uh, in the Old Testament, you may have tried to do this, and you may have discovered, and I think this is true, that it's often difficult to see any logical connection between these rules as you read. Have you noticed that you, you tend to jump from topic to topic? This is because it's not the purpose of our biblical writers to give us access to the ancient Israelite legal system. That's not what they're interested in doing. They're interested in giving us a few examples of how things worked out in particular cases so that then later people could extrapolate from that when they come to cases of their own. And sometimes some of the laws are really baffling to us. Um, at least they are to me. If they're not to you, come and tell me afterwards because obviously I have something to learn. Uh, but for example, have you ever come across this one? You shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. Do you know this one? This is a cracker. Um, <clears throat> what's that about? I mean, personally, I don't suffer from this temptation. Um, list of sins I'm thinking of committing today, murder, slander, boiling a baby goat in its mother's milk. Um, so here's an example of a law that must have made sense back in ancient Israel's day, but we can't make connections with it. Um, it must have been important because it's repeated three times in the Pentateuch. So it's not a trivial matter, but it does alert us to the fact that when you get to the business of laws and punishments, inevitably that has to be done in a context, right? It has to be done in terms of where people are at, what's going on, what they're doing. If it doesn't do that, it can't be useful. And so now we're into areas where it's not so clear that these various rules apply directly to us. And for very obvious reasons, actually, because we're not living back in the ancient Near East. <coughs> so what this law is trying to achieve, it's trying to achieve, I think, some good. Uh, Old Testament law, strictly now law, Old Testament law is responding to life as it goes wrong, and it's trying to provide remedies, it's trying to stop things falling through the floor, to maintain a certain amount of order, a certain amount of justice, and honestly, that's all law can ever really do. Law cannot make citizens virtuous. It can terrify them about doing wrong, but it can't actually make citizens virtuous. So whereas we need to embrace the moral vision of the Old Testament, I think, we have to be very thoughtful about how we relate to a lot of these laws. Uh, they may well offer something of immediate relevance to us nonetheless. They may do. So it may be directly relevant because these laws, some of them, may be very closely allied to the moral vision of the Bible. They may be indirectly relevant to us. We can't just bring them straight across, 
but there's a principle behind them that perhaps would be still a very good principle. A little example. Uh, people in the Old Testament are commanded to leave the edges of their fields when they harvest them for the poor. Now, if you have a field, you're a farmer here in Northern Ireland, and you have a field you're harvesting, that law might well be worth considering if it's going to be relevant, although you'd have to persuade people to come out and do the gleaning and reteach them. Even if it's not relevant, though, at the level of the field and the gleaning, what's that law really about? It's a law against profit maximization. It's a law about allowing the poor to have a stake, to, to be able to participate, right? And you can see the principle is surely still a biblical principle, something we ought to believe in, right? I think so. And then sometimes uh, Torah may not be relevant uh, to us at all because it really does have to do with Israel and not with us. And there are such areas of Old Testament law, and the New Testament helps us to identify them. So Christians do not engage now in animal sacrifice because the purpose of that has gone. Uh, Christians are no longer, male Christians are no longer circumcised because that was a way of differentiating Jew from Gentile. That was really important back in the Old Testament. But the people of God now is both Jew and Gentile. And Paul says, if you're trying to bring that over here, you've completely missed the point. You with me? So there are all sorts of laws that have done what they were intended to do. But you can see from this that we actually have to be really rather thoughtful about this. I'm afraid I rather cringe when I see Christians with banners. You know the big, the big banners with words on them? And you'll often see a text from Leviticus, say, scrawled up on this banner, you know? And it's all very well, but you have to really ask, is that the text you really want to go with, really? You know, is, is that the one that, that really is, is God's word to us now? You've got to ask the question, because God's law is of this very diverse character, right? So we've got to think about what we're doing. We can't just unconsciously, as it were, just bring things over without considering that we're the church and Israel was Israel and these are different entities, right? So this requires thoughtfulness. I'm going to close with um, a favorite example of mine about why this business of thinking about Old Testament Torah and moral vision requires thoughtfulness. This example is not taken from the Pentateuch. It's taken from Proverbs chapter 26. Uh, in Proverbs chapter 26, oh, this is just about being thoughtful. I missed that. Let me go back. So what I'm really saying here then is that we need to read thoughtfully we need to read contextually what's this trying to do in its context. We need to read trustingly as well, obviously, trusting that God does have things to say to us in Old Testament Torah as in the Old Testament Scriptures overall. But we have to do all three of these things, not just one or two of them. Otherwise, we're going to get into a kind of rules mentality we may even construct our morality almost entirely negatively, and that's not going to make us biblical people. I sometimes say to my students, unfortunately, it's possible to be biblical and wrong as well as biblical and right. 
It just depends how you're reading the text in the context of the big story. So, to the example. Here's the example. Proverbs 26, verse 4. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him yourself. Very straightforward piece of advice. Get your notebooks out, your pencils out. We can surely work this out. Here we go. My friend Angus. Is Angus a fool? Yep, he's a complete idiot. Question number two. Is Angus speaking folly to me? Absolutely. Another West of Scotland word. He's a plonker. So that's a yes. Question number three. What should I do? I've got my Bible. I've got Angus. What should I do? Let's do the math. X plus Y equals Z. Okay, it's obvious. I should not answer Angus according to his folly. Perfect. Really easy. Straightforward. Now, back to my Bible reading. So here we are. Proverbs 26, verse 4. We've just done it. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him yourself. Verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. You're kidding. It's in the Bible. Isn't that, isn't that just the opposite of what the previous verse says? It's not my fault. It's in the Bible. And my point is this. The Bible is not like a car manual. If I have a problem with my car, I go to my car manual, I look up the index, the index leads me to where my particular problem is discussed, I get a very specific solution, and it's nice and straightforward, nice and easy. And of course, uh, I'm not saying we don't have lots of very specific commandments in Scripture. We do. We do. And, and you know, in all honesty, if we just stuck with the specific commandments and didn't worry about anything else, we'd probably be doing really, really well. So obviously Scripture teaches us some things really, really straightforwardly. But when we want to know how to apply the commandments of God to actual situations, we need to think. And Proverbs 26 is really saying that. You've got to think. Here's Angus. He's an idiot. What's the upside and the downside of answering Angus according to his folly. Consider the matter. Make a decision. Do the best thing. Each of these possible responses has a downside. Make a decision. How are you going to love Angus best, the best you can? So you need to think. You need to act. How to love God. How to love Angus. And I think if we keep all of these things in mind, we'll be able to read the Old Testament with enormous profit for our Christian lives without perhaps making some of the more, the more crass mistakes that sometimes Christians have made in the past who haven't stopped to ponder the matter. Okay, I'm going to stop there, Peter, to give us plenty of time for Q&A. And Peter's going to come and referee, if that's the right word. Uh, he has a microphone. Peter, are you going to rove with that? Yes. Peter's going to rove. So because um, it's raining and it's hard to hear, right? 
So if you have a question, please just put your hand up. Peter will come and find you, and we'll go from there. If you can keep the questions as concise as you can, so we, we can have a number. All right? Okay. Don't so be shy. About me. And while you're thinking, because you're multitasking type people, you can look at these forums and, and fill them in about some feedback while you're thinking of a question. So anybody got a question? Because you know what I'm going to go straight to in a minute. <laughs> I'm going to ask one. Anybody got a question? Oh, so if I... No, it's over there. Away from here. Somewhere away from here is where you need away to be. Away from you? That's right. Anybody, anybody going to give? So while you're thinking of a question, Ian, a common question is love, law. The Old Testament law seems to be clear on some issues like sexual ethics. But there's a lot of the narrative out there saying but the loving thing is to do something dif different in terms of, let's look at something very specific like homosexuality. So argument is New Testament doesn't say a lot on that. You mm. can comment that if you want. Then, so do we look at Old Testament law or do we live, bring a loving approach to that question? It's a great mistake, I think, to say the New Testament doesn't say a lot about X. Um, because the New Testament is very focused on a relatively small number of questions, the most important one of which is, who is Jesus, right? And the New Testament presupposes that everyone's reading the Old Testament. So it doesn't have to say a number of things, because they're already established things. So you have to read the whole Bible. So I, I don't buy the, the New Testament says thing. I mean, we're given a Bible by Jesus, by the way. But by Jesus. It wasn't me that said you had to read the Old Testament. It was Jesus himself. So I don't buy that. And I don't buy the law-love dichotomy. God is good. God is love. God gives the law. Moses isn't doing an end game around God, you know, when he gives the law. This is God's law that comes to the Israelites. I trust God being good gives us good laws. And I trust God to know better than I do what goodness looks like and what human flourishing looks like. So I think we have to resist that move. I think to play love off against law is a bit like playing God the Father off against God the Son, which is another favorite game, as it were, but it's very, very misguided, uh, and we shouldn't do it. Um, how, how would you respond to someone who says, as you said, there's, there are certain sections of the Old Testament law that are no longer relevant and therefore they extend that to mean the entirety of the Old Testament law right. is no longer relevant? Um, I would probably begin to answer that by pointing out that that can't possibly be right because both Jesus and the Apostle Paul actually quote the Old Testament law when teaching the churches about what to believe and how to live. So even just beginning with the New Testament, you see that it's not an all-or-nothing game, that there are some aspects of Old Testament law which, for good reason, have now done their job and have passed away. But it's not just the Ten Commandments that are quoted in the New Testament. The Old Testament is routinely quoted in the Old Testament with regard to how people should live and, and so on. And we have to remember that for the first 200 years of the church's life, the Old Testament was what was being cited as Scripture. Even though Paul's letters and so on were circulating, there's massively more citations of the Old Testament up till about 200 AD than there are of the New. The early church took Jesus' own teaching to heart, in other words. And uh, what had to be shown by those early Christians was that what was happening in Jesus was in accordance with the Scriptures.
And the scriptures they meant were what we now call the Old Testament. So we tend to have it upside down. We tend to say, how can we possibly square the God of the Old Testament with Jesus? That's the wrong way around. The question they had was, how can we possibly square Jesus with the God we already know? So we turn it on its head. So I would just say, it's, it's impossible to say that Old Testament law is not relevant to Christians because it's flatly contradicted by both Jesus and, and the apostles. Um, so, so my question is about uh, when Jesus um, and the adulterous woman, he acted in mercy, uh, basically saying... Your microphone's gone off, I'm afraid. Just shout out then. Just shout out and I'll repeat it. Well, that's a great example. Let me repeat the question for the folks at the front. This is the question about Jesus with the woman taken in adultery. So doesn't he show mercy that wouldn't have been shown uh, in the Old Testament? And I would say, no, I don't think that's really the best way of understanding that story. You will notice it's only the woman who's hauled before Jesus. The question is, where's the man? Uh, and, and so they're already breaking Old Testament law uh, in what they're doing. And... Uh, so I, I don't think, I think when we set Jesus over against Old Testament law, we're really doing something that Jesus himself is, is not encouraging us to do. Jesus presents himself as exegeting Old Testament law so that we get it right, as it were. And so he's criticizing those people, and he does this all over the Gospels, not for their enthusiasm for the law, but for really reading it badly, really badly. And he gives them the correct interpretation. In Old Testament law, on the other side of this, you have to remember that um, although various of these, uh, these, these uh, sins and so on attract very severe penalties, the interesting thing is when you read the Old Testament narrative, you don't usually see those penalties being enacted, which raises the question, is this like a rule book where a judge opens it and says, adultery, punishment, stoning, you know, closes the book and then they go and do it? Or are these punishments ways of marking the seriousness of the crime? But there may well be lots of other steps in between. Um, for example, Islamic culture is probably quite close in some respects to Old Testament culture. And you may know that in Islamic culture, the state, the judge within the state, really has very limited powers. It's all about what the family members want to happen. So if somebody's murdered, the, the, the point is that the judge will bring them together and they'll, they'll see if they can work it out. And if the family insists on vengeance, then the punishment's enacted, right? So on both sides of that question, we have to be very careful. And I would encourage you, as you reread the Gospels, to ask yourself the question, is Jesus really contradicting the Old Testament? Or is he trying to tell me what the Old Testament's really saying? And I would say it's the second of those. And in fact, I expect that to be the case because he says, do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. Right? So I just think our frame of reference for this question has got a bit skewed. Um, and I think we tend to set the two testaments against each other in a way that they do not encourage us to do, actually. Brilliant question. So this question is about young Christians uh, you want to encourage them to read the Old Testament, but what do you do in practice? Because it's quite 
intimidating, and I'm sure many of you in the room are nodding and thinking, yeah, it really is. Um, so here's the thing. I would not give a young Christian the epistle to the Hebrews to read. I would give a young Christian the Gospel of Mark to read, right? So you've got to pay attention to where people are, right? And similarly, I would not give a young Christian the book of Leviticus to read, but I might well give him the book of Samuel to read, for example, right? So it's not an all-or-nothing game. It's how you introduce... Well, first of all, it's what you think the big picture is, the big story, and then you're inducting people into the thing. And you're helping them to know not just what to read, but how to read, which is one of the big themes from my point of view in the morning Bible readings, because I sometimes worry that we think almost of the Bible as a kind of magical book. If you just give it into people's hands, it will do its work. And in God's grace, it very often will. It will also lead to a lot of mistakes, though, in my experience. So I think we have to be very careful to measure these things properly. I'd want to encourage the young Christian as much on the question of how do you read? So are you reading, looking for the God who is good, the God of blessing, and the God we've been talking about? Is this what you're looking for? Uh, are you reading and interpreting things that don't appear to quite fit with that in a way that, that, that is going in that direction? Or are you at least seeking advice when you get to those things. So, I mean, let me give you an example from our own family of, of this. My young son, Duncan, when he was about nine, announced to us quite independently his intention of reading the Bible all the way through. And we thought, okay, <laughs> hard to object, right? No, don't do that. Um, so off he goes. A few days later, he comes back and he throws the Bible down the dining room table. And he says, do you guys know what's in this? Because he had started from Genesis, and he was reading on. And a lot of that's not for kids. It's just not for kids, actually, to be honest with you. It's the dark side of real adult life, and I don't think it's wise to let children just loose on the Bible, frankly. You have to measure where they are and the, 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 state of the, the developmental stage they're at and, and guide them and have good resources. I mean, a lot of our children's resources are not very good, frankly. Uh, we struggled greatly when we were a young family to find really good resources that we felt we could put our weight behind. The tremendous need for people to really produce excellent Christian children's resources appropriate for the stage where children are at and not doing silly things like glorifying Samson and stuff like that, you know. So when they grow up and read the real story of Samson, they feel as if they've been cheated. You know, this is not good. Um, so there's just some practical steps there, I suppose. And just touching on that resource question, just a little bit, any suggestions of books or resources for us in terms of some of this big story that you've been talking about, an accessible way into the Old Testament? Just your own books? Not just my own books. I'm happy for you to also say your own books. <laughs> we are living in a rather good time for this. I mean, if you'd asked me the question 30 years ago, what would you recommend as I read in the Old Testament? I would have been struggling. But actually, this is an area of the church's life where there's a lot of good books, in my opinion, uh, a lot of good commentaries in the Old Testament. So um, apart from my own books, uh, 
I'd recommend Chris Wright. I believe you've had him here at New Horizon before. Chris has a tremendous um, ability to, to, to communicate the big picture. So he has a fantastic book called Old Testament Ethics for the People of God, which is right on the subject of this morning's seminar. So certainly Chris Wright, I would recommend. Um, I'd recommend a fellow at Wheaton College in the States called John Walton, who's wrestling with questions of science and faith and Genesis and all that. So that's a wee bit edgy perhaps for some of you, but nonetheless, for those of you who are in that zone, I think he'd be a very helpful author to read. And then, you know, I have to mention my own book, don't I? Uh, I've just written the books called Seriously Dangerous Religion, What the Old Testament Says and Why It Matters, What the Old Testament Really Says and Why It Matters. And it's, it's, I, I'm, I'm told it's readable. It's okay. It's for ordinary folks. I think it's readable. Peter's wife has read it. You can ask him. Um, so I think it's readable. And that really is, is trying, to, is trying to reframe this story for folks so that they can connect with it and perhaps begin to move into reclaiming Old Testament Scripture for themselves at an adult level, not a Sunday school level, at an adult level. So there's a few anyway. I do. It's a kind of. It's almost like um, TED Talk meets documentary. So it's um, there's a basic there's a basic uh, talk on some aspect of Bible or history, and it's intercut with all sorts of interesting people's stories about their Christian experience and so on. It's really very high quality, and and I think fits the ethos of New Horizon very very well. So right. So brilliant question about Sabbath. Sabbath's an interesting one, um, because Sabbath in Scripture is kind of rooted in creation as well as in Mosaic Torah. And so in the Christian church, there's always been a particular set of disputes about Sabbath, because even if you don't think Old Testament law has much to do with you, many people have thought that Sabbath is a basic matter of human rhythm, as it were. You can't, you can't just be what your work is. And Sabbath really is designed in the Old Testament to be a day when you can step back, remember that you're more than your work, remember that you're an image bearer of God. Of course, the included rest for the slaves, and in light of what I said the other day, the animals got to rest as well. You ever notice that? So it's rest for the whole of creation. I think our societies have suffered enormously from the loss of legally protected Sabbath. Now, I don't think we're about to get legally protected Sabbath back anytime soon, frankly, in the kind of pluralist society we live in now. But I think it's a, a profound loss, not just for Christian people either, because Sabbath protected ordinary working folks in, in profound ways. It gave them a right not to work. It, it, even if you had to work, in, when I was young, you were paid double time to mark what a great sacrifice it was. The great global capitalist machine has just gobbled all of that up. I would say then that we really have to try to continue to practice it as a very good thing that God instituted. And with our young people, we have to persuade them of the positive benefits of it. The big problem here comes from the negatives. When I was growing up in Scotland, it was the thou shalt not that was emphasized. So... Here's a list of things you cannot do on a Sunday. Well, what can you do? Almost nothing. Well, that sounds boring. 
be quiet. That was more or less it. And I, I hated it. I absolutely hated it because I'm a child, right? I can't be expected to take adult responsibility for this. And, you know, anyway, that's my baggage. Sorry, I'm getting a bit. Um, so I would say, as with all of the things, even with sexual ethics, there's no point in telling people what they can't do unless you're telling them fundamentally what they can do. So what's the good over against which you don't then do stuff? What's the blessing? What's the, what's the flourishing that makes sense of the prohibition? And I don't think we've done very well in Scotland or Ireland on that over the, over, the, over the period, you know. And I think we have to get much more onto this. God is for us. God gives us laws because God is good. The Sabbath, we assume, therefore, is good. Let's go and find out what's good about the Sabbath, and let's find ways of practicing it, which retain some of that, even in this culture we're living in, and which are age-appropriate, for gosh sakes. So don't make children sit in the corner doing nothing and thereby coming to hate the church and possibly hate God for the rest of their lives. You know, it has to be age-appropriate. Um, so that's what I would say. But the accent must be on, on what is good about living in God's kingdom, not on the thou shalt nots, which are all, all very important. But you know from raising your own kids, if you try and raise them with the thou shalt nots, without a positive vision, it's not going to work. It's just not.